0: Welcome to Kick the Dogma. I'm your host, John Emmerich. On today's episode, we have Jim Edwards, former editor in chief of Insiders News Division and author of Say Thank You for Everything The Secrets of Being a Great Manager Strategies and Tactics That Get Results. Jim draws from a combination of his own experiences with leadership, successes and failures, leadership styles of others he witnessed throughout his career in journalism, and research on the most current thinking about group dynamics. Most interesting to me was our digression into creative thinking, how it works, how you set yourself and others up for productive sessions, why you should dedicate time to doing it, just like you might dedicate time to working out, and why brainstorming sessions aren't as productive as sending people off alone. Here's my discussion with Jim Edwards. Welcome, Jim.
1: Hey, uh, it's good to be here. Thank you for having
0: me. Jim, your background as um, as as a journalist by education training generally, but over time, you became more of a business journalist. Do I have that correct?
1: Yeah, yeah. I started off in newspapers doing regular news, you know, like crime and politics and stuff like that. Um, and then I moved to uh, Adweek in New York, where I, uh, I started as a copy editor and eventually became managing editor. And then th- th- there was a big chunk of my career, basically, in business journalism.
0: And that, that that's a great lead-in. Did you see firsthand... Great managers, yourself, great leaders, as you were coming up earlier in your career, that you drew from a little bit from this book.
1: Um, it's it's a real mixed bag, and the the book contains um, a lot of anecdotes about really terrible managers that are, that I encountered or friends and colleagues of mine encountered, like really pretty uh, toxic, weird bullying people <laughs> you know like shout at their staff all day and make people cry in the toilets and stuff like that uh, but i did also uh work with some people who were just really brilliant um just really good managers um and often you know they came across as really good people so yeah it was it, it was a, a real mixed bag but the media business generally and particularly the news business is kind of famous for having terrible managers it's a high pressure business. Everyone's working really, really fast. Um, You know, if you're trying to get like a TV program on the air or a newspaper uh, printed, there is no, there's no room for error, right? There's no margin of error there. Like the damn thing, the newspaper has to go to print at midnight. The TV show has to be on the air at six o'clock. So there's a lot of pressure and you absolutely have to get everything right. It's not like, there are a lot of other jobs where if you make a mistake, it's, you know, it's fine. No one cares. And you can just you know, if you're cleaning windows, for instance, you know, if you miss a spot, you can just go back and rub the spot off and it'll be fine. But if you, if you publish a mistake, it's kind of disastrous. Like it's in every newsroom I worked, that kind of thing is taken really, really seriously. So you're working like at speed with no margin for error and you cannot make any mistakes. <laughs> so you can imagine the stress that people are under. And uh, this is uh, a, pr- a pretty good environment to create someone who's a terrible boss. Um, because it really does feel, you know, I sympathize with some of these bosses. It really does feel like, you know, the quickest way to get something done will be to just yell what you want, because it absolutely needs to be done and no one has a choice. So, yeah, so so, so the it was a real mixed bag. I mean, I did, I, I want to make it clear, I worked with a lot of people who were, you know, really brilliant, just good at it, you know. And the other thing, and the one, it's one of the reasons I wrote the book, is that in the media and certainly in the news business, no one is promoted because they're a good manager. Or actually, let me take that back. It's very rare to be promoted because you demonstrate some aptitude for management and leadership. It's actually the opposite. Usually they wanna promote you because you're like a really good reporter. You've gotten lots of scoops, everyone knows you. You're really influencing your beat or your field. You know, you're good at writing, you're good at getting people to tell you things they should not tell you. And then, Editorial management comes along and says, you know, you're really good at this. What if we make you an editor? You can then delegate all the work you're doing to other people and we can leverage you that way. And maybe, you know, if you have five reporters under you or 10 reporters under you or whatever it is, all of those people will become as good as you. This turns out to be bullshit, right? <laughs> this right. is, not, it, at yeah. <laughs> this is not at all. Yeah, in every industry. at Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's like that, the same in it. You're absolutely right. It's the same in every industry. The classic one I always used to hear about was sales where, you know, who who ends up running the sales team? Who becomes the sales manager? A well, sales it's the person. best salesperson. Right. Yeah. So you literally take your best player off the field and put them on the bench and say, now coach. And it's, it doesn't, that's not how, man, that's not good, right? That, that's yeah. not how it should work. And it's, it's exactly how I was promoted. Uh, I joined Insider 10 years ago and I joined to write about advertising. And initially they had me supervising two people. So it was, I was, I wasn't really a boss of any kind. I it was, You know, we all wrote stories and we sat around the same table. By the end, I was supervising 100 people. I was on the executive committee, which broadly supervised the whole company. Uh, you know, there were nearly a thousand employees in the company at that time. And they're scattered all over the world. It's a giant international media operation by the time I left. And there's, there's very little training along the way. You know, no, no one sort of, well, they actually at Insider it was a better company than most, and they did give us some, they did give us some help with this. But basically, you're sort of you're promoted because you demonstrated some aptitude for reporting and writing, and they're like, "Can you teach other people how to do this? Can you help other people do this?" But what I didn't realize, and it was really really difficult, and I think I make this clear in the book, I am not the world's best manager. That is not. perspective the book comes from i've had more than my fair share of disasters and mistakes but the the most difficult thing for me was to learn that managing people and you know leading a company or just getting particularly managing a very large number of people it's a completely different skill it's a new job you haven't if you get promoted into management you're not doing the work anymore someone else is doing the work you have a new job your job is to manage them and that is a completely different job requires completely different set of skills and you may not be good at it and i think this is very common in almost all industries it no is. one it, it's rare to sort of overtly acknowledge to someone to say congratulations we're promoting you please run this team oh and by the way you're not really doing your old job anymore you've got this you've got this brand new job and and you may not even be good at it
0: <laughs> yeah so you you learned uh you did witness some great managers you also benefited from learning what not to do from some horrible managers and i'm guessing also both sides from your own personal experience and you touched on this what i call this great paradox of of being successful in your profession is as you say you get promoted and you no longer do what not only were you really good at but you were better than everybody else at and now you're leading people you're in hr you have hr issues yeah time with people which makes it so difficult and there's another challenge here that you talk about the, the chapter that you go over this in the book is about delegating and how hard I found that myself I mean when as I, I was in the investment management profession and I was a really good analyst and my ideas worked so what do they do they pr- promote you to portfolio manager which in that industry is really just about giving you discretion and not having to answer to someone else for investment decisions but even then when I had a pool of young industry specialists, analysts to draw from, I still built my own models in Excel. I couldn't do it. I couldn't leverage them the way, which is the whole design, you know, is to leverage this team of research analysts and not do it all yourself. And uh, I, I just never got there. Did, did you struggle with that at all and, and turning over yeah. what you were good at to other people?
1: Yeah, yeah, I did. I did. For a long time, I continued to write and report stories even though I was supervising more and more people. There was, there was a point when the London office of Insider grew to about sort of 40 or 50 people, something like that. And uh, I was still writing the occasional story and trying to knock things out quickly. And it's, it's like, it's, it's addictive. You know, if you're good at and I think I was pretty good at the job, but if, you know, if you're good at it and you enjoy it and it's interesting work and it's creatively satisfying, it's addictive and you want to keep doing it. But I do remember the day when it were, uh, I was promoted to editor-in-chief of the news division in, I think, 2018 or something like that, 2019. It doesn't, I can't remember the exact year. Anyway, then I was supervising a much larger team. And I think on the team at that point, there were like 40 or 50 people, but they were scattered from London to California. And it just became clear instantly, I was never going to write again. You know, and you can look on the site. If you look at my byline on the site, it just comes to a screeching halt. <laughs> it does. You that. Yeah. You know, it, it's just, you know, it just ends in a certain year and no, there's no, um, no further contact
0: was heard from him. <laughs> right. <laughs> Rest in peace. Um,
1: yeah. 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 So it's um, the, the, the difficult contradiction is that to be a good manager, you do need to know your business inside out. You do need to know how to do it. Right. You do need to be able to tell other people how to do what you do. But the skill of telling other people how to do what you do, what you do and to become good at it, and so you know to elevate them and to make everybody successful that is completely different from whatever the work was
0: and the The book to me contains at least two different ways to come into this leadership position. One is that you've already described and is in the book where you start off with a small team and the team becomes very, very large and that's one experience, and then there's another experience i i I don't know if you had, but you speak to which is you are pulled from one side of a company and put in charge of a pre-existing entity, which I would think presents its own challenges because if it was your team to begin with, you get to kind of define the culture a little bit as you go along because it's reflective of you as opposed to jumping into... A, a pre-existing entity a group of people they've got their own culture their own way of working like who's this you know gym guy but i i know you write about it in the instances of some other folks but ha- talk a little bit about the additional challenges that come from taking over a a group as a leader as opposed to organically growing with it as you did in at least one experience
1: yeah yeah so the problem with being parachuted into someone else's team is that your company or your boss may, may think, you know, oh, this person is great. We should put them in charge of this important team over there or this, this team that needs help. The immediate problem you've got there is that there's some likelihood that the people on that team, their reaction to, to this will be, hey, w- w- you know, why weren't one of us promoted to this right. job? Why is someone being brought in above us? What are we, chopped liver? And uh, depending on what that team does, you as their new boss may not be um, as knowledgeable as them about how the, what, is requ- what is required in the work you may have to learn from them they may be they may all be better at it than you are particularly if it's like a some new division or some beat or um, some uh, skill that the company has that you're not uh, familiar with some product line or something and my you know my advice in this position and you know I know other people who've been through this but I've done it myself is that you have to you can't just come in and be like I'm the boss everyone do what I do what I say I have great ideas here's the new plan it's it's ju- that's just not going to work uh, the best way to do it is you need to get these people to buy in to the fact that you are their new boss. And, uh, the way to do it is to sit down with each of them and say, you know, okay, tell me what you do. Tell me what works. Tell me what doesn't work. You know, is there anything I can do really quickly to make this job go faster and easier for you? You know, are there, are, there, are we doing stupid, worthless things that we should just stop doing and we can walk away from them and save everybody some time and money? Are there other ideas that are really successful that the company that doesn't, you know, know about that we can lean into and you have this conversation with everyone on the team. I, my recommendation is to have it individually with them, preferably outside the office at a Starbucks or something like that, so that they can, you know, relax a bit and uh, feel like they're not being spied on. But you basically want to ask them what works and what does not work. And after you have talked to everyone on the team, then you can sort of put a plan together and you should basically make their plan into your plan. And the advantage of this is, first of all, it will probably be a pretty good plan because the people who know how to conduct the business of your company best are the people who are actually doing the business. It is extremely common that sort of rank-and-file workers, uh, you know, they know how to speed up the production line and they know how to slow it down. You know, they know how to uh, get through a shift quickly and productively or they know how to fuck it up as well, frankly. And, uh, you know, so if you can turn their plan into your plan First of all, they're going to feel listened to. You will actually have listened to them, right? This is a genuine exercise. This is, this is authentic. This isn't like a trick. Right. You know, you're, you are listening to them. You are turning their plan into your plan. They will like your plan because it is their plan and they will see bits of it that they suggested in the plan. And also it will make sense because finally someone in management is listening and it's like, oh yeah, we're going to stop doing task A, because everyone on the team realizes that task A is a complete waste of time and they don't understand why the company
0: even cares about it. In the first place. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, this, and like every business I've worked in has, ha- has one of those. People are doing something and no one knows why they're doing it. It's just that they've always done it and uh, people are afraid to stop doing it, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, that's, that's my advice for coming in. You have to have some humility and it's worth being transparent with these people. It's like I've said this to people's faces on, when I've been brought in to supervise a team that where I'm new, I've said, you know, look, you know this, how to do this better than I do. And I I need you to help me uh, understand what we do and to get better at it. And, you know, you're there as a, so, a sort of a, a supporter and a cheerleader and someone going to bat for your team with upper management if you need better resources, stuff like that. that that's the, in the early days, I think that that is the way to approach it. The bad way to approach it is to come in from a position of complete ignorance and just start bossing people around, hoping that you know better than they do, yeah. um, you know, and just sort of like guessing, guessing and uh, doing stuff on the fly. I, I definitely learned that employees hate it when management does stuff on the fly. Yeah. You know, like just sudden U-turns without any warning, um, new strategies and new tactics that, that seem to come out of nowhere. Like, you know, if there's one thing that workers really hate that's being called into a conference room with zero notice and being told, you know, oh, the company has a new strategy. Everybody stop what you're doing and do something new. Right. You know, everyone's like, what are you saying here? The thing I've just spent the last five years of my life working on has turned out to be worthless. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people hate, people hate that.
0: Yeah. It's funny. As I sit here listening to uh, you just tell this story in person, it, I had a flashback. To an experience I had, and it it, it strikes me that as challenging as that is, bringing someone from the outside to lead an existing group, it is a chance uh, for a, a if done right, the way you described it, for a clean break uh, from uh, embedded practices. The 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 smartest thing this friend of mine ever said to me, and we just met every morning for coffee before we went to his company and my job was, he said, John, you know what people don't do enough of? He said, just dedicate time to thinking, like why do we do this? Or should we, I I come in every day, it's eight in the morning until five at night. And I just, I'm task oriented. I just do these things is to take a break and say, why, why are we doing this? Should we even be doing it? And even if we should be doing it, should we be doing it this way? And there's just no time to do that. And it seems like there's an opportunity as you get parachuted in to take over a new group is to say, Hey, hands up in the air. I don't know exactly how you all do what you do. I I have a general idea what our goals are, but yeah, it's true. You know,
1: it's, it's um, it's interesting. I, I can't think of a single... Co- well, there must be companies out there, but I have
0: not <laughs>
1: encountered one where the company literally says, you know, okay, you must schedule time for thinking. Um, right. I, I remember once at Insider, I, my schedule became overwhelmed with meetings and I, I, I said, I, it actually reached a point where it was not... I used to joke, we're approaching a singularity here where ev- all of us are in so many meetings that there's no, no longer any, any time done. left. <laughs> yeah, no one's getting any work done. There's no time left to uh, do the work, and also it's impossible to schedule any further meetings with each other because we're already double booked in all of these meetings. And this is, I call this the meeting singularity, where you know everything grinds to a halt because <laughs> because no one can get out of a meeting, no one can get out of a meeting or into a new one. Right. So I suggested, you know, we should just have one day a week of no meetings, and I did not win this argument internally. <laughs> <laughs> if there's, i love insider it's a great place to work i heartily recommend it but if there's one thing i think that they should experiment with that could improve the company greatly is uh give everyone a month where one day a week they uh nobody, nobody has is. any of these things yeah. yeah so they can just think and the, the other to your point about thinking this is correct I, I think there's a sort of work is in many ways performative Like you have to be seen to be doing, you have to be seen to succeed and to to be seen to working. So the idea of, you know, closing the lid of your laptop and going offline for an hour to just sit around with a pen and paper and a cup of coffee and just like to do total blue sky thinking without any interruption and without being seen to be doing it, it feels, feels like laziness, even though that might be the most creative thing you could possibly do. Yeah. So, or it, it could look like laziness because you're just drinking coffee and staring at a blank page, right? right. Um, and the other reason I'm glad you raised this and I'm enthusiastic about it is that we did this thing at Insider in the news division once. One year, you know, I would ask the staff at the, uh, typically at the end of one year, beginning of new year, you know, we need to pick some, a small number of major projects that we're going to work on, like really big investigations, like huge, the biggest stories we can possibly think of. How are we going to tackle them? Want to do, We'll devote extra resources and extra people and, and money, right, to, the, to pursuing these things. So let's, you know, collectively figure out what, what can we really do here. And one year we did this, we basically had a sort of uh, summit. It was like, it was like, and we all got on Zoom, you know, and there was, uh, we broke up into teams and so on and so forth and uh, brainstormed basically collectively. And we came up with some pretty good ideas, um, and we did some pretty good work. It was, you know, I was proud of it. What we didn't really get was excellent work. We got a lot of pretty good ideas. We we didn't get like, holy shit, this is amazing. You know, I've ne- I I would never have thought to do this, right? And then I actually heard uh, a series on uh, BBC Radio over here about the meetings. Uh, it was a sort of comedic take on the culture of meetings, and uh, this, I believe, turns out to be true: that everyone thinks you get good ideas out of a brainstorming session. In fact, you don't. I believe there is research that shows that if you ask people to go away and think on their own, with no one else around them, and then come back with their ideas, that you actually get better ideas that way. So the next year, I said, "Let's do, let's do it this way. Every, we'll just ask everyone to go away on their own and think and propose their best ideas, and uh, to make sure that there's no no one is has any inhibitions, and no one is shy about it. We're going to ask them to submit their ideas completely anonymously through a Google form, where you know you have these anonymous forms, and then it fills out a spreadsheet with the ideas. The ideas we got for that were streets better than the year before, because people were not afraid. People were not afraid to let their crazy freak flag fly. <laughs> you know, and and if you want like really good ideas, sometimes you have to give people an environment where uh, they can. Uh, propose some really extreme crazy shit and obviously we did not execute all the ideas we we got like you know 40 of them and we i think we squeezed it down to five where we were like these are great ideas plus we think we can actually do them but yeah the quality of the thinking and the ambition and just the originality was much better the second year so I'm i'm actually sort of very much in favor of forcing people to think in isolation with no interruptions
0: there's no question. I agree with that, and
1: yeah, this is the shower thing, right? Why do you get your best ideas in the shower? Because yeah. no one's bothering you yeah. when you're offline.
0: <laughs> yeah, I would take it a step further and suggest that it they they come when you're not even dedicating time to a process called thinking, but you're almost loosely engaged in nothingness, like a shower, like fly fishing, yeah. like walking your dogs. Uh, I think there's a story about Thomas Edison how. He would take a break from his lab work, his actually intense focus work, sit in a chair, and he was he would put himself in this stage in between sleep and concentration, where he's sitting in the chair with his eyes closed, but he would roll a couple of you know ball bearings in his hand so he didn't fall asleep, but he was just in this in between stage and where he wasn't engaged but wasn't asleep, and that's when when things came to him, but he was absolutely alone, yeah, I find brainstorming to be. I've I've been in big organizations where they thought that was the end all be all, and they they were just awkward, and and also with your yeah. they were right, but and also oh, yeah, you,
1: someone always says there are no bad ideas. There everybody. are no bad I'm ideas. Sure. There are lot. lots of
0: bad ideas. Right. There, there are really some fucking terrible ideas. <laughs> so, like, my version of it is you you set per, the the uh, freeing parameters like ignore technological feasibility, ignore cost. And that's all fine. But you introduced the idea, which is also you're submitting them uh, uh, anonymously, which I hadn't even thought of, which is even more freeing, you know, to kind of think outside the boxes, you know, the the saying goes. So, yeah, uh, that's brilliant. Well, hopefully people listen to this and and come up with, you know, they start committing, you know, go for a walk, go for a walk this morning. You know, don't come back for three hours.
1: The other the other corollary around sort of giving your brain some quiet space is is rest. I mean, everyone is advised, you know, if, you, if you're stuck on a problem and you can't solve it, uh, you know, just have a good night's sleep. And in the morning, it will be, it will seem easier. And I never really used to believe this until uh, I went to Columbia Business School for a year and had to study accounting, which um, for me was just incredibly difficult because I'm not a natural math person at all. And uh, learning accounting is, it's incredibly difficult and it's quite boring as well, actually. And uh, notoriously at this business school, uh, there would be accountants there, like professional accountants who are studying for their MBAs, and they would have to take the basic accounting course, and they would fail, right? Because uh, in modern accounting, the software does it for you. Um, Hand-cranking your own balance sheet actually is, you know, with a pen pen and paper is is actually really, really difficult. And I uh, I just had this really long day once, and I just could not crack the problem. It was really complicated math. I could not crack the problem at all. Uh, I went to sleep, I woke up the next day, and when I looked at it, it was easy. I mean, it is is it it is absolutely really true. Yes. But just sleeping on it for some reason allows your brain to rest and put things in order, and so so it's in better condition the next day um, when you approach it fresh.
0: Yeah. It's weird. You're able to make those connections. Let, let's jump into a couple of the, the specific chapters and topics, um, selfishly ones that I just went, wow, that I I... I I screwed that up, or I did that right, or I I relate to this. Uh, After my career in investment management, I actually became a a firefighter for a while. And we had this concept called the span of control. It was literally in our textbooks, where um, as you develop a team, and you could have 12 firefighters on a fire and have teams of three or four. um, the, The goal is to keep it between three and seven, because once you get closer and closer to seven, It becomes very difficult to manage responsibly, and therefore, you immediately just break up into two teams and divide the responsibilities. And you have a whole chapter on it called the Rule of Five. Where did you come come across that in your own personal experience, or did someone talk about it with you? And and how'd you see it in practice if if you've seen it?
1: There's a couple of things there. I I did notice that when i was when I was supervising a small team, like I I really actually believe that the best team you could supervise is just three people—you and two other people because for some reason it's, you're not even really managing them. You're just having an ongoing conversation the whole day long and um, everyone's on the same page and it's really easy to communicate with two other people. But I noticed that as I ended up supervising more and more people, once the team hit six people and particularly if it went above six, all of a sudden you can't even get everyone to meet at the same time. You know, you're like, let's have a weekly meeting and there is not full attendance. Why is there not full attendance? Well, Someone's had six, someone's on vacation, someone is seeing a source or a client, Um, someone just forgets, you know, (laughs) know, uh, someone's in the bathroom and suddenly the weekly meeting is is not the best way to communicate with these people and to get them all on the same page because some people are not there that day. So it's weird, You, you very rarely get that with three people but it starts to become really pretty common with six people. So the mistake you make as a manager is to attempt to manage a team that is larger than five um, the same way that you manage them uh, when there's only two or three of you if people are being added incrementally to your team the mistake i made is that you're like well they're giving me more people to supervise i must be good at it i'll just continue doing it the same way <laughs> this is a mistake it's when you are the, the sort of the analogy i use in the book is it's like having a dinner party if you host a dinner party for four people Pretty much everyone around the table will have the same experience. They'll all be in the same conversation. They can, they can hear the same things, even if they're not talking. But if you host a dinner party for eight people, you've got people at either end of the table. And you've been at a dinner for eight people or more. People talk to each other. They you know Side conversations start happening. Um, there's a conversation at one end of the table. The other end of the table can't really hear it. So people at different ends of this party will have wildly different experiences of what the dinner party was like and it is it is simply not possible to run a team of eight people like you're hosting a dinner party for four you cannot you cannot do that you have to put some structure in it and i was uh so i was researching the book and i was trying to figure out is there some is there like a hard cut off for this like where does the change Take place, and it turns out that someone did study this um, back in 1913. He was a French agricultural engineer named Maximilian Ringelmann, and he did an experiment where he asked farm workers to pull on a rope uh, to produce the maximum amount of force possible over an extended period. And he found uh, that with teams of five people or fewer, up up to five, basically, the more people you add to a team, the harder the team pulls. But after five, what happens is that no matter how many people you add to the team, each individual person on the team starts pulling a little bit less. Yeah, that's actually. Right. So the efficiency of your rope pulling team starts to decline. And uh, it's tempting to conclude from this that there's some sort of free rider problem in which people, you know, the seventh guy on the rope pulling team realizes, Oh, you know, I don't have to pull very hard because the six other people are clearly pulling very hard. So I'll just coast. Ringelman theorized that what is actually happening is that the other people are creating social distractions for each other and there's there's some sort of mental distraction going on which reduces their focus and uh, they just don't pull as hard and this is called the Ringelman effect and then there's a couple of other pieces of research from very from you know business and management researchers that there's a famous study that suggests the uh, the best number for a team is 4.6 people um obviously you can never have 4.6 people so I call this the rule of five, I'm not, and, I, and I really think that you know, supervising anything up to five people is easy and effective, and everyone is highly likely to be on the same page. And you can have a good personal relationship with four other people, right? Once you get once you get above that, you absolutely have to change tactics, and the tactics for managing larger number than five people have to be completely different. It has to be, you know, you're going to end up being much more structured. You're going to end up repeating yourself a lot. Uh, you know, emails will become important. Getting more than five people all on the same page is incredibly difficult. I mean, think about it this way. If you, when was the last time you tried to organize, I don't know, a party or an event or you know, dinner for someone's birthday and you've, you need more than five people at the table? We've all been in these WhatsApp groups, right? You can spend days just trying to pick a date. <laughs>
0: right, right. And isn't the uh, dinner party a great, not just an example, but a, a natural experiment? If you had a dinner party with 10, 11, 12 people, and you had a camera on it and some uh, boom mics, you'd, you'd find three different conversations just organically emerge because there's it's uh, no yeah, other way to, yeah. to do it. And I can tell you again, as a, as a firefighter, I, I believe in this um, wholeheartedly and I experienced it personally. It isn't just on an actual fire scene. But if you think about when we ran trainings and we had you know 12 rookie firefighters uh, come to the training, you divide them up into groups of four and you rotate them through different stations. I can tell
1: you, I mean, the, the none of my experience is like fighting fires, obviously, but it's very common in larger companies. So, so a, a huge problem for a lot of companies, and particularly management, is how do you get people to change what they do quickly? Because obviously, the world today changes extremely fast. And right. Change occurs at a much faster pace today than it did in the past. And, uh, but you know, particularly in the world of technology, look I mean, look at the rise of TikTok. How long did it take TikTok to really start destroying aspects of Instagram or Facebook or uh, YouTube? Like it, it feels like TikTok was, you know, yesterday it didn't exist. And today it's now the dominant medium yeah. for some people. Um, so these things come out of nowhere and they happen very, very fast. If you're in a big company asking people, everyone in a big company to change, this can take so long. And a thing, uh, you know, that happened to us at Insider is that when the company was really small, just that, you know, a handful of people, a couple dozen people, uh, we could change and do new things on the, you know, on a dime, basically. Right. Like we, would, we would have a meeting. We would say, we need to do this new thing. And then the next day, it was like the plan was rolling. It was in progress and uh, change would happen. You could count it in hours uh, sometimes, you know, hours or days. Um, by the time I left, thousand employees nearly... <laughs> Wow. You know, yeah. there were was, was some things we tried to change where it would take us months. You know, there's a couple of major projects I remember that lasted like two years or more. There is something about scale that makes change incredibly difficult. And it's, uh, it is it is one of the most difficult things you will do as a manager is to sort of uh, execute some major change in a large organization, even if that organization regards itself as being very entrepreneurial.
0: Yeah, It's, it's just really tough. Your your pizza story is an amazing one, by the way, in the in the book. Not to <laughs> name names. I'll leave that for the uh, listeners to to enjoy when they read the book. But what an incredible example of uh, dramatic change, leadership from the top, and and having success.
1: Yeah, it's. Um, I I love that story. If you if you look at the, I'll just very briefly I'll recount what the Please. pizza story is. Basically, I think it was in. I always forget the year. I think it was like two thousand nine or something like that. Domino's Pizza. Admitted to itself internally that its pizza was terrible. Like th- they had a, a huge sort of come to Jesus moment that was like very very genuine. And sales were in decline. I think they were losing 15% sales every year. Headquarters was filling up with complaints, and basically the entire management team, I presume, eventually sat at the same table and said, "Look, guys, our product is awful. Like people hate our pizza. It's terrible. Right. We need to, you know, we need we need, we actually need to change everything." And they did some internal focus groups which they videoed and they had their own customers sitting in these like windowless secret rooms where they filmed them through a uh, a two-way mirror. And the customers are sitting there saying, this is the worst pizza I ever had. And they decided to be completely honest about it and they turned it into an ad campaign. So they had these secret videos of their own customers saying, this is horrible, I hate it. And they turned that into the ad campaign and basically the uh, the president of the company um, who I want to say is called was called Patrick Doyle. He basically said, look, we're going to change everything and we're going to do better. And um, they changed. Uh, they had to start with the recipe, obviously. You know, they changed the bread, they changed the cheese, they changed the sauce, et cetera, et cetera. But this required them to change almost every aspect of the company because they have to cook the recipe differently. They have to, all the sourcing is different. They even had to change the boxes in which they were delivered, so on and so forth. So this is a company that employed tens of thousands of people at hundreds of locations internationally. Every single one of them had to change. And worse than that, because they'd been serving the same pizza for 25 years or something, basically the management of the company had to go to everyone in the company, every single person, and basically say, we're really sorry, but what you have been doing is terrible. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, how's that you know?
1: feel? Yeah. And uh you we, we need you to drop it and do do a new thing. And uh that the scale of that is just really impressive. And it's it's if you watch the videos, it's called the Domino's Pizza Turnaround, you can still see it on YouTube. It's actually it's really quite moving, uh, you know, to see these people who have put their lives and their careers into this product right. sort of admit to camera. Some of them are choking up with tears, you know, admit that, you know, we've just been it's terrible pizza and <laughs> if we don't change we we will die and but they but they did they were completely honest about it like they didn't bullshit their staff there was no like internal pr spin about how really it was the best pizza which a lot of companies do that right a lot of companies sincerely believe that they are the best at what they do and they want it's like being in a cult right they want you to believe it as an employee right they didn't do that at dominos they said look we're going to be really honest about it and uh, so they turned it into an ad campaign and then they launched the new pizza And uh, it was a big success and sales started to go up again. And then the the stock tripled and tripled again. So it was a huge success, but also the sort of strategic advantage of doing that was they were able to, first of all, they got in front of the fact that their reputation was terrible. And second of all, by saying we admit it was terrible, but now we have a new thing. They were able to sort of box it off into the past. You know, they can draw a line on it and, and confine that, horrible, negative controversy about their brand, they confined it to the past because they're like, we're they telling the it. story. And we have, Yeah, they owned it. We have a new story. Here's the new story. And you can't criticize us anymore because we just admitted that and now it's in the past. I love that story because a lot of companies make this mistake, right? That is the last thing they will do right that is at most companies that is only what they would do if they were forced into it for legal reasons yeah
0: until then they'll spin spin spin
1: yeah they'll spin, or they'll hide it or you know pretend it's not happening or come up with it. I love it when they come up with a new name for whatever terrible thing they've been right. doing right. hoping that the rebranding will fix it
0: right call it something <laughs> else yeah. yeah another practical chapter you have is on a to-do list that you are a fan of and you and you write about the eisenhower matrix uh, which was fascinating to read about. I, I'd not heard that story, and what a what a leader uh, himself. Are there other tools, to do list programs out there that that you're familiar with or also uh, enjoy? I learned last interview about a book called "Unleash Your Complexity Genius" with Jennifer Garvey Berger. She uh, talks about how there are apps to control you from sending that email in anger to the entire team. In a in a fit of emotion, where it literally docks the email for twenty four hours, and then even before it sends it, it'll ask you one more time: Are you sure you want to do this? Do You want to send this? So uh, this is just a general question about. I love tech- the idea. It's, I need so that. It's incredible, and um, it's a question about: Are there, you know, t- does technology help? It how does technology help with to do lists to make you more productive? If at all, I don't know.
1: I need, uh, I need, I need an app like that to prevent me from. Um, so you know, it's like it's after dinner. You're you're just about to go to bed, and you've had a couple whiskeys, maybe. Yeah. And suddenly at midnight, you have a really good idea that the world needs to know. Yeah.
0: Right. <laughs> and that is the very worst time to send an email. Right. <laughs> or a Twitter post, or anything really.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, I've got something funny to say. Um, <laughs> uh, I I'm, I'm actually i mean there are there are lots of great bits of software that will help you do your job in in any company but in just just in terms of prioritizing your work a thing i'm a huge believer in is asking everyone on your team to write down in order of importance what they think they have to do and then looking at that list and taking tasks away from them because almost every time i've asked someone to do this uh, they have, you know, whatever it is, 10, 20 things on the list. And at the bottom of the list, I'm looking at tasks. I'm like, we don't even do that anymore. <laughs> why, why, how did you not get this memo? Right. Why are you wasting time on this? This does not need to be done. Um, you know, none of our readers or customers or users are uh, interested in this. So actively, like almost every day, if you can, actively taking work away from people is is a great tool to have. I almost, at Insider, I used to almost like use it as a threat because people would be like, I can't do this. I'm overwhelmed. I'm burned out. You're asking me to do too much. I'd say, bring me that list and I will take work away from you. When they hear that, it it was actually quite unusual for someone to say, oh, yes, please take away my tasks. It was more usual for them to say, "Um, OK, well, let me be the one who decides which tasks I delete. And I'm like, fine, as long as like 25 percent of them disappear, I'll be happy with that. People want control. Right over, but they also want permission to do less and to focus more on the successful things. And and the problem, the reason we get this problem is that you as the boss are in this default position of every day asking people to do something. And so it's just like an accretion of tasks. Please do this. Please do that. You know, so, and because they're employees and they're being paid, their default position is, I have to say yes to do this because this is the job and you're paying me to do it. And I can't just walk around the office saying no the whole time. Right. I mean, I would, you know, try that at your peril, I would say at most jobs. Um, Yeah. So uh, the, the, the default thing is you're asking more and more people to do more and more things. And it's just snowballing, you know, it's no one's, dropping anything. No one's taking anything away. No one's saying, let's stop doing these other things. So you you should actively stop that stuff and just make it clear to people, you've got to focus on the most important things that move the needle. And you absolutely have to stop and walk away from the tasks that are useless, that are not productive. And every company has something like this.
0: Yeah. My first, I call it my first legal job where I was on the books and paying taxes and whatnot as a teenager, I had a manager who actually had a saying for never saying no to him. He said, be a can-do guy. You know, like if I ask you to do something. Sure, I can do that. And and what I'm reading is that's not uh, a, a good uh, leadership tactic. And
1: You're just going to burn your people out. Like, exactly. The, the, the cliche I use in the book is that if you want something done, give it to a busy man. Yeah. And there is some truth to the idea that people who are very productive are often very busy. And, you know, if someone is just very good at doing a lot of work, if you give a task to them, they will do it for you. And I've definitely done that. But basically, you just end up punishing your best people,
0: you yeah. know, driving and them driving away, which is what, what happened to me, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. for what in, then was, you know, 350 an hour, you know, I uh, said, so I'm going to go do something else. Yeah,
1: yeah. Another another way I think that you can sort of prove this to yourself that is true is if you remember or think about the days on the job where your boss wasn't in. Like if your boss goes on vacation for two weeks, remember how it just, everything suddenly became easier. So much. You know, every, yeah. <laughs> everyone, the work got done quicker. People were more productive. You know, the the wheels didn't fall off. Yeah. So it's, it's a bit like that if you are. Yeah. So I'm a big, I'm a big believer in prioritizing and Eisenhower had this, I won't bore you with the chapter, but Eisenhower had a very specific method for ranking tasks which uh,
0: is interesting and useful, and of course, he won. He won World War II, so I, I feel like he accomplished a, f- a few things. Yeah, just a few <laughs> things like the uh, interstate highway system, World War II, and yeah. um, and a whole bunch of other things. NASA. Yeah, That's right. Just Space created. Authority. <laughs> yeah, it, let's talk about the, the the title of the book. Um, just so listeners understand, is just just that. It's 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 one chapter. It, the The book is much broader. Than just saying thank you, but talk about that. I I I do I I believe in this. It's one of those things you know you think is just common sense. It isn't just about being polite. There are studies out there that say that job happiness, the leading variable, is feeling appreciated and and thinking you're doing uh, meaningful work. It isn't about compensation or ping pong tables and and happy hour on on Fridays. And you also say to to thank publicly. Talk about that whole the, the that yeah. title of the book and how it uh, fits in.
1: So um, th- the title of the book came from uh, an incident uh, early at in the early days of Insider. I was w- working uh, with my little team of t- just two other people, and uh, I made a colleague whose name was Laura stay very late on a Friday night to finish the task. And you know, so she stayed till like seven or eight at night. And uh, finally, we got this thing done. I, I, I can't. Unfortunately, I can't remember what we were trying to do, but I do remember it was tedious. Okay. <laughs> and I, I, it was one of those projects where I was like, this is a great idea. And then two weeks later, I was like, oh my God, I hate myself for coming up with this. So she leaves the office at about eight, you know, heading off to Margaritaville or wherever. And as she was about to leave, I said, hey, Laura, one more thing. And she turned around and just like looked daggers at me because she thought she'd made her escape, right? So she looks at me and I said, Thank you very much uh, for all the work you did this week, Laura. It was it was really good and very noticeable, and um, you know I really appreciate it. And I know I know we worked really hard on this thing, but you know it will be worth it. And I, I just want I just want you to know before you go away for the weekend that I'm I'm very grateful for what you did. And she just sort of beamed, like her face lit up, and then she went on her merry way for the weekend. And uh, this other guy, Ellis, who sat across from me, was like staring at me, and I said, "What's your problem, Ellis?" <laughs> you know, and he he just said, "I don't think I've ever heard anyone." say thank you like that before oh goodness and i was like really no one here says thank you seriously and then i sort of thought about my own career and i was like actually i worked at several places where hardly anyone ever said thank you it was like we give you a paycheck and you do the work and that is the thanks right it's like that right do you remember the tv show Mad Men? oh yeah uh yeah do you remember the scene in which peggy um, is complaining to don draper that don's uh, like i think he steals her ideas and never gives her credit and she's like all i wanted was the credit right. and don draper screams that's what the money was for <laughs> you know, he, it's like he doesn't get it that the, the money is not enough people actually want to be appreciated right. they want you to notice it and so the the advice i give which you touched on earlier is it's not just about thanking people, but you should thank them in public. And if they've done something good, you should praise their work in public so that other people can see it. First of all, because giving someone recognition is good, and it's they don't just want you to recognize that they did something good; they want their colleagues to see you being recognized. Right? It's like winning an award. Right? Why are awards? Why are award shows? Every industry has an awards show. Right? Right. No matter what industry you're in, there'll be an end of year black tie thing where you can win like a perspex block right? So, right you know why are they so popular it's because you know if you win one it feels amazing and you all your colleagues can see you winning it so they know you did something really good and it's it's extremely validating so you should sort of lean into that and publicly praise people and i sort of recommend sending a company-wide email saying we did this thing and bill jones was great you know rebecca smith was awesome so that everyone can see it People really appreciate that. And weirdly saying thank you and recognizing and praising good stuff, for some reason, it alleviates a lot of stress. Or at least it makes the stress more bearable because right. people feel appreciated. Right. The other thing it does, the, the sort of the side benefit of that from management's point of view, is you're constantly, if you do it regularly, you're constantly sending a message to the whole staff. You know, this is what good work looks like. This is what the expectations are. This is what we mean by success this is what you know hitting a goal looks like so you're sort of constantly sending it's not just you know yay you were awesome you know rebecca smith the subtext is and the rest of you should copy her (laughs) yeah so there's that and then the flip side of that is again something i didn't really realize was a bad idea until basically until someone took me aside and said this is a bad idea which is If you've got criticism of someone's work, or even if you just like you want to change it, or say to them, "Please don't do it this way; do it this other way," you should deliver that criticism in private. You should not stand up in front of the whole office and go, "Hey, Rebecca, don't Don't do, don't make it blue. Yeah, don't do that. It's I don't like it blue. Make it yellow. You know, (laughs) why would you? Why would you pick blue? Don't do, don't do that because it's, uh, you know, even if it's completely common sense and. Actually, in the news business specifically, publishing a mistake, particularly if it's defamatory, can be very expensive and extremely damaging. And there's a lot of risk in the news business. So it is actually incumbent on management to correct bad work as fast as possible. So it feels legitimate as a a manager to stand up and go, hey, Rebecca, fix that. But that just makes her feel like shit. And it makes you look like a tyrant and a bully because you're yelling across the newsroom, et cetera, et cetera. So y- what you want to do is critique people's work in private, right? Either right. pull them into a conference room or DM them on Slack or something or something like that. And make it clear that, you know, it's not personal. It's just business. Right. You know, you get that they worked hard and it's not, this isn't a criticism of their entire person or their soul. It's just the expectation. The expectation here is we want the product to be yellow, not blue yeah yeah but that that division you know praise them in public and critique them in private it took me years to figure that out yeah. there's another great example of how no when you get promoted into management no one comes along and says oh by by the way here here are some
0: instructions for doing this right so you just you just invited uh, another uh, selfish selfish question for for you to ex- expound on um, you tell this story about making uh, coffee when you were uh, younger and I, I have Four sons, three of whom have already left and gone to college or beyond. And mm-hmm. I used to tell them when they were going to their first job, I said, Look, if they ask you to make a paper airplane, give them the Concorde. You know, that's how you get to <laughs> to the next job. What advice would uh, you give a young Jim Edwards um that we maybe we have talked about it already, if there was just a for, for young people coming up who are not yet leaders, but maybe someday. Well,
1: I thing I didn't, again, I didn't realize that th- this was what was happening when I was younger until I got older and I had to put other people through it. But, and the, ex- the example in the book that you mentioned is uh, I had my first proper newspaper job. One of my first tasks was to fetch coffee for the entire team every day, <laughs> right. which looked at one way, uh, feels kind of demeaning. You know, I was like, oh, I want to be an editor. I want to be a professional journalist. And they were like, why don't you go down to... Um, the local cafe and pick up the donuts for us. And what I realized from that is if you get people's coffee orders wrong, or if you forget a donut, um, they're gonna raz you, right? That <laughs> people, people do not like giving you money right. and finding that you come back without the donuts or the wrong donut, or you know, there's milk in their coffee when they didn't want milk in their coffee and, and stuff like that. People want their coffee just so, right? And everyone has a very specific thing that they, ab- that they absolutely want. And what is really happening when you're asked to fetch the coffee is they're figuring out how reliable you are. Like, can you be trusted to do a task right first time? You know, will you, will you come back with the right change? Can you be trusted with money? Can you uh, fulfill detailed instructions, right? And if you can, if you can demonstrate to them uh, that you are very reliable and trustworthy and you get it right first time, um they're going to trust you with a bunch of other stuff right that was what i that was what i learned from yeah. from that no i am not suggesting to um future managers that um you should use all the new people on your team to go get your coffee in fact <laughs> green them that way <laughs> yeah it, it is it is actually uh, demeaning and you're going to um you're going to get into trouble pretty quickly i would say asking uh, the women on your team to go get, fetch your coffee or, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, uh, people don't do that anymore. Go right. get your own coffee. But, right. you know, entry-level junior staff, they have to uh, start at the bottom and they have to start with the simplest tasks. So, so giving someone a bunch of the entry-level tasks um, and seeing whether they can execute it reliably, that is like the first test of a professional, right? And it is astonishing how many people cannot execute instructions reliably. I would say that that was one of the most difficult things I had to deal with as a manager is encountering, I mean, it's, it's a minority of people, but there is a sort of persistent <laughs> minority of people in any workforce who just, you know, you say, please do this. And the one thing they will not have done by the end of the day is do. it's like, what, how, Oh yeah. Yeah. So you cannot, you cannot promote
0: those people basically. Yeah. And the message being to me listening to it is if you want that more uh, advanced task. If you want more responsibility, just show me you can do this one first. And otherwise, if you can't, why would I? Why would I give you even something more challenging? That is. Ex-
1: that is exactly it. That is exactly it. I,
0: I, a note: the observation I made, and and listeners can't see me holding up a copy of your book with all the the highlights and and margin notes. Is the word communication comes up in at least half the chapters. That seems to be the thread that connects all this. Is is how you communicate clearly. Repeatedly was a very interesting chapter. And and honestly, that seems to be almost the um, anchor to windward for for good leadership starts with good communication.
1: Yeah. Again, it seems obvious in hindsight, but I struggled with this a lot. And it it wasn't until I actually remember a very specific conversation I had with Lindsay Hemphill, who's one of the top uh, managing editors at Insider now. And I think I had fired off some email to the team saying, you know, hey, guys, let's all all do this. And she she took me... She took me aside and was like you cannot just do that anymore. Wow. <laughs> you know, yeah. you can't just like fire off an email on the fly, like off off the cuff. What you want to do, what you need to do is talk to all your lieutenants and your key colleagues and get them all on the same page and get them all to, to agree to this and then tell them that you are going to roll out this communication. And then do it in a systematic way. And you may—it may not just be an email. It may also be an all-hands meeting, and it may be a message in Slack, and so on and so forth. You have to be much more systematic. And often you have to repeat yourself because half the time people aren't listening. And the the way you communicate and how often you communicate becomes uh, its itself. It is a piece of work, and it and it's hard work. You can't just again—you can, you cannot just communicate with a team of a hundred people like you're hosting a dinner party for four friends. You can't do it. So communication becomes more laborious frankly and you have to communicate in all the channels and it particularly in a large organization if you just say thing if you just say one thing once uh, there is a high chance you'll kind of be ignored and it's because people have work to do they're busy Right. And also they've got competing commands coming in from all over the place. You know, people from legal want to talk to them. People from HR want to talk to them. Their customers want to talk to them. Their sources want to talk to them, et etc. et cetera. They've probably got family stuff going on as well. When they hear a new instruction from you, what they're actually doing is they then weigh it, right? They're like, well, how important is this compared to the 15 other things I have to get through today? Right. And uh, as a manager, you will real, you'll realize that particularly at the beginning, Uh, I felt when the team got bigger, I was like, these people have stopped listening to me. Why? (laughs) Why are they ignoring me now? Like I'm, it's like (laughs) you sort of feel quite insulted. Uh, um, And the answer is that they're not ignoring you. It's just, you need to repeat it and they need to hear it several times before uh, they realize, oh yes, this is a fact of life and it's now, this is just the baseline. You know, this is the threshold I have to cross. I have to fulfill this instruction because I'm hearing it day after day. I would say, um, and there was a lot of, Moments like that. I would say I think sometimes people want to go into management for uh, ego reasons because they think, you know, well, they're going to get more money, obviously, and a fancier title. But, you know, there's like power and people will do what you say and you'll feel great. And it's like being a celebrity. And, you know, it's uh, all of this is going to feel good. I got to say there were many more days when it was just humbling. And... (laughs) your ego takes huge blows as you, as you realize um, the people that they, they don't regard that. They don't regard you that way. And it's, um, it's a lot, yeah, there's, there's a lot of um, yeah. Management is more difficult than you think. Sometimes I tell people, you know, the two things you want to care about in your career are is your work creatively satisfying? Do you like your work? Do you like going to work? If you've got that, that's fantastic. Right. And then the second thing is do, uh, do you feel you're being paid enough? Like if you, if you feel your compensation is just for what you do, Um, If you're paid and particularly if you're paid well, you know, if you've got those two things, it's creatively satisfying and you think you're paid properly. Those are the two things you should care about. Everything else is details, particularly your job title. You you know, a lot of people are like, I just want to be promoted. And you're like, ah, honestly, being promoted is often a poison chalice. (laughs) You know, if you really enjoy the work you do um, and you're being paid well enough, uh, you should do that. Um, and I did this in my own career. I was, I had become the managing editor of Adweek and I was super, I, th- I think we had 25 people at the time. I was supervising all these people. You know, I was making some good money at the time, but it was really, really stressful. Like it was unpleasantly stressful. And after that, the next job I had after that, I decided to demote myself and become a reporter, like a writer again. And basically almost, I didn't restart my career obviously, but you know, I took uh, a pay cut and uh, I took a title cut and I went back to my trade, which was the writing and reporting, because I wanted to redo that. I was strong on the editing side, but my my actual experience of writing and reporting at the time was was not a lot. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to relearn this trade from the ground up. And it was enormously satisfying, and I'm I'm glad I did it. And it probably cost me some money, you know. It cost cost me a couple of years of seniority in my career, but
0: it allowed you to go further. I bet.
1: Yeah, it did allow me to go further because you know eventually you need to be able to tell other reporters how to do this you know where does information come from how do you persuade people to tell you things how do you get documents from a courthouse how do you request information from the government that they are legally required to give you how do you get stories out of a fire department or whatever these these are like actual skills and you have to be able to tell people who've never done it before how to do it and if you yourself cannot do it um then you're 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 kind of useless even if you are a good manager you know, you're good at supervising people and organizing them and encouraging them and, and, and all the rest of it. But if you if you don't literally know the nuts and bolts of your uh, industry, there's a weakness there and you're, you're going to hit a sort of ceiling.
0: Right. And I left the, the last third of the book uh, untouched, including an incredible section on uh, hiring and recruiting, which, again, was one of the things I only had to do once in my life and completely screwed it up. Um, it's uh, recruiting and hiring well, as you say, is, is a big bonus for any company. And I would just add for a really small company, making a mistake can be devastating when there's five of you and that, that fifth person was a mistake. It's such, it's such a, uh, a distraction yeah. and I can't emphasize some of the learnings in, in that chapter enough that were very original, like going out and recruiting and finding people as opposed to just posting a, a job right
1: yeah so so i found that eventually it becomes obvious that getting the right person in for the job will solve 80% of your problems as a manager right. and so the one piece of advice that I, I think it says in the book you know if this is the only thing you remember from this book this will make you a better manager is you should devote as much of your time to recruiting talent as possible and to finding the right people and certainly at insider i would attempt to prioritize that over any other task including the day's news if I could, like finding the best person for the job, because when you get, and we've all worked with this person, right? We all know someone we've worked with and they're just so good at what they do. And they're so reliable and they're so productive and they're so successful that just having them in the room is a great experience. And, and you know, that, you know, if they ever left the company, it would be a disaster. You know, you'd have to hire three people to fill their shoes. So yeah. Re- recruitment is like your number one task really as a manager. It's not bossing people around. It's it's finding the right talent.
0: Yeah. I became a big
1: believer in that for
0: sure. Yeah. It makes your life uh, much easier over the the long haul. The book is Say Thank You for Everything, The Secrets of Being a Great Manager. Jim Edwards, live from London. Thank you so much for your time today and best of luck with the book. This is great. Thank you for doing it. I really appreciate it. <laughs>